0: so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. Amen. Now, the reason why I've read you the scripture is because over the next few episodes, we're going to be talking about this spiritual armor and weaponry that all believers should have available to them in this crazy spiritual battlefield that is the world we live in. The aim of this series is to demystify and make the armor and weapons that God has provided for us simple to understand, and quite frankly, easier to use. I'm Jaden, and I'm going to be your guide as we equip ourselves for the coming victory. Welcome to God's Armory. Everybody, and welcome back. It's been a while, hasn't it? Did you miss me? Actually, uh, don't answer that question. I prefer not to know. But regardless, it's so wonderful to have you back here on the Reconnect podcast. This is the official English podcast of Shincheonji. And it's such a pleasure to be back here with you again. My name is Jaden, and I've been your host over the past several months, in and out a little bit, but it's it's so great to be back here and talking about God's Word with you. And if you've been following along our past few episodes, you'll know very well that we've been talking about God's armory as written in Ephesians 6. I thoroughly recommend you to go and read that if you haven't. Or if you just need a reminder of all the things that we've been talking about. Because previously on the Reconnect podcast, we were talking about the shield of faith. And I, I if you haven't listened to that yet, please go back and listen, the shield of faith. Today, we'll be moving on to the next one that we see there in the scripture. And so let me read that verse one more time for you so that we can know where we all are. So in Ephesians 6 verse 17, it says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Amen. So today we are moving on from the shield of faith and putting on this helmet of salvation. Of course, they're both ultimately linked, aren't they? You might remember that I pointed out in a previous episode that there is an area in which salvation and faith are actually dependent on one another, right? They're not mutually exclusive, faith and salvation. For while Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 that we are given a measure of faith from God and that we are saved by his grace, we are also taught that it was Abraham's faith that counted to him as righteousness and allowed him to be called God's friend in James chapter 2. But that very same chapter of James 2 tells us that though we may think we have faith by simply professing a belief, unless our faith is accompanied by actions, it's dead. It can feel like harsh words, doesn't it? A dead faith. No one wants to stand up and say, yes, my faith is dead. No one likes being called out in that manner. So it takes some honest reflection on each of us as individuals to really sort of self-reflect, self-assess. How is my faith? (laughs) Is is there action according to my faith? And, And what is my faith even built upon? Of course, there's the very famous faith chapter, Hebrews 11, where the author of Hebrews goes through generation after generation of God's work, listing the people who had the greatest faith in their time, and more importantly, what their faith actually led them to do. <laughs> they, they didn't have great, they, they weren't in, put in the, the faith hall of fame because they said, I believe in, in the loudest voice. It wasn't a shouting competition, but rather their strong faith led them to do something. Their faith was alive and as a result, they inherited, you got it, salvation. Faith without works is dead. And that is not a good state to be in when it comes to considering our salvation. So for today, the helmet of salvation, ah, it's a big topic, right? So much to go through, so much we could talk about in such little time. But we're going to do our very best looking at this helmet of salvation in Ephesians 6. Let me read Ephesians 6 verse 17, one more time, it says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Amen. We will come back to the sword of the spirit in our next episode. And while we are there, we'll also have a look at the offensive weapons of the enemy as well. Those flaming arrows uh, or the darts that were were mentioned in our previous episode uh, when we spoke about the shield of faith. But for today, we're sticking with the helmet of salvation Because although this is not a very complex topic to understand, it is worth taking our time on. The first thing we might want to ask ourselves, as we've considered with all the other things in God's armory as well, is that why is salvation likened to a helmet? Why why use a helmet? Well, in the context of the time in which Paul was writing this to the Ephesians, the kind of helmet he was talking about in this passage would have been you know, one worn by soldiers to protect their heads from bicycle crashes. Ah, sorry, I mean, swords and arrows. (laughs) The two items we'll talk about next time. Right, I don't think they were wearing bicycle helmets at that time. Maybe, I'm not sure, don't quote me. Anyway, but in the Bible, God often uses the image of the head, you know, the head to express authority and the quality of humanity's ability to reason and comprehend his word. Why? Because the head, that's where you do your thinking, isn't it? That's where your brain is. So after all, it was only when God breathed his breath of life, that is his word, according to John 1 verse 1, John 6 verse 63, when God breathed his breath of life, the word into Adam, did Adam become a living being? And as a living being, Adam was made in God's image and likeness. This is what we've spoken about before when God formed Adam, he put him in a position of authority over all the beasts of the earth. In contrast, the the tail known as, you know, the tail end of a creature, you have the head and the tail. The tail is often used to describe the more beast-like aspect of humanity. It's essentially saying there's the top and there's the bottom, right? And so the beast-like aspect of humanity that has betrayed their covenant with God. In the Bible, that's often described as the tail. And we're going to look at a few verses that describes that as well. So while the head represents authority, the tail represents a lack of authority. Where the head represents rightful authority, that is authority granted by God. And according to God's plan of creation, the tail represents that which should follow the head. This is pretty similar to how we use the word head in modern English too. When we say that somebody is the head of something, that means they have the authority. In the same way, the Bible says that Christ is the head of the body, which is the church, according to Colossians 1 verse 18, if you'd like to go turn there. In Ephesians 5 verse 23, Paul says that the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Now, I'm not trying to get into (laughs) I don't wanna talk about any sort of gender roles or gender politics, but I wanna look a little bit deeper. There's a deeper level of what Paul is saying here when he's talking about the head of the wife or the head of the church. Without taking too much time to get into this here, you can easily find many verses in the Old Testament, particularly in the major prophets and the minor prophets too, in which God refers to his people who have betrayed their covenant with him as an unfaithful or adulterous woman or an unfaithful or adulterous nation. This doesn't mean they were going around living their best lives. Rather, it means that they were committing a spiritual act of adultery by receiving seed, right? Which we know is the word. The spiritual meaning of seed is the word from a source other than their spiritual husband. So we're talking about a spiritual act of adultery by betraying their promise with God. Since God's word is also God's seed, if his people... Those who should be in the position of his beloved wife Receive the words or teachings of another spirit Then they are committing adultery Right Just like how physical adultery Is when a husband or a wife They break the promise that they've made together So then also spiritual adultery Is when God's people betray him and break the promise God doesn't break his promise But it's the people who are unfaithful to the covenant That they've made with him So we have Christ as the bridegroom And the church Which is us both male and female, as the bride as a key image in many of the prophecies about the second coming in the New Testament too. This means that we should be those who are faithful to receiving only Jesus' seed. That is Jesus' words. If we instead run around receiving seed from any teacher, any tradition, then we too are being adulterous. How's that for a sobering thought, right? But let's go back a little bit to this whole head and tail idea. Remember the head represents the authority, which in the right order of God's creation is granted by God, while the tail represents that which should follow the head. Unfortunately, in scripture, there are situations in which the tails seize authority. This is never a good thing. Let's have a look at a few example scriptures. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is a whole chapter dealing with the blessings for being obedient to God. And the curses for disobedience to god's laws and it starts off by saying in verse 1 if you fully obey the lord your god and carefully follow all his commands i give you today the lord your god will set you high above all the nations on earth it goes on in deuteronomy 28 verses 13 and 14 to say the lord will make you the head not the tail If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. Amen. Additionally, in Isaiah 9 verse 15, it says that the elders and prominent men are the head, but the prophets who teach lies are the tail. In this passage, it's clear that in God's eyes, the tails should not be exercising authority over the heads. If the elders and prominent men in this verse are listening to the tails, believing them to be prophets speaking God's word, then they are being disobedient to God, according to what we just read in Deuteronomy 28, right? By following the teachings of these tails, although they should be the head, they too become tails. This is very clear if you read just a bit further in the chapter of Deuteronomy 28. You should go ahead and read the whole scripture, actually. It gets pretty intense, quite severe, actually. And before we go on, I just want to add that context is, of course, key. If you'd like to know more about this stuff, if you feel like, oh man, there's so much going on, I I would really like to understand more, um, please reach out to us. We have many study groups around the world can meet in person, online, either in one-to-one or in small groups that are all aimed at helping believers understand the Bible fully. <laughs> Obviously, here on the on the podcast, we're limited for time. So we kind of dip in here, pull out verses that are interesting and relevant. But if you want a deeper and fuller picture of how all these things connect together and what we're talking about here, please, you can head on over to our blog. It's called As It Is In Heaven all hyphenated as it is in heaven.com and send us a message. We'd really, really be happy to chat to you. Okay. So moving on, the Bible is full of good heads and bad heads. Heads were the authority figure, right? Bad heads are authority figures that speak lies, right? Bad heads are those that belong to Satan. Therefore speaking lies like their father, Satan but for our purposes in examining the helmet of salvation. <laughs> that's right, that's what we're talking about today, right? We've, we've strayed into all parts of the Bible already, but we're talking about the helmet of salvation. So we're gonna focus on two simple things. Number one, making sure that our heads are good heads, as in that we are referring to God's word instead of man's teachings. And thus we are being obedient to God, not obedient to another spirit. Ensuring that we are being blessed for obedience as opposed to being cursed for disobedience. Okay, and number two, understanding how salvation relates to our position of obedience to God's word. All right, enough about heads for now. Let's talk about salvation. As Christians, as believers, this word salvation gets thrown around a lot. So much that we might have become so used to hearing it that we've lost track of what it means exactly. So what does it mean to be saved? What exactly are we saved from? It's a bit strange to talk about being saved when we're not entirely sure what we're being saved from, right? So to answer this question, we need to go time travel back to the garden of Eden. When God created his kingdom on earth, the garden of Eden, we're told in Genesis one and two that he placed Adam in charge of it. Adam was to be the head of God's kingdom on earth. And according to Genesis 1 verse 28, he was supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. But things took a very different turn. Adam and Eve chose rather to believe and act on the words of the serpent and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a tree that God had in no uncertain terms commanded them not to eat from. In Genesis 2 verse 17, God told Adam that he must not eat from that specific tree. And what would happen if he did? It was essentially... Eat it and you will surely die. It is, if you read it, a very condensed version of Deuteronomy 28. If you obey, there will be blessings for you. If you disobey, you will be cursed. I hope by now that you guys see the relationship between the fruit of that tree and its seed. Whether or not there was a physical garden or a physical tree it's rather immaterial. The fact is that by choosing to listen to and act on the words of the serpent, Adam chose to accept that spirit's words, that seed, that word into his heart. That seed, that false seed grew and produced fruit that led to actions of disobedience. It led to the separation of God and his physical kingdom. That separation is completed in Genesis 6, where God finally decides to destroy the generation that had betrayed. Adam's world, Adam's generation, Adam's descendants. And he wanted to start over with a new person who he would put in charge of those who chose to be obedient to his word. Who was that? A man named Noah. By considering the events of that time, we can start to get a clear idea of what salvation means and how it relates to the faith and actions we discussed in our previous episode. To recap it simply, when God created Adam and told him to multiply and fill the earth, he was supposed to do it as a being made in God's image and likeness. That is filled with God's breath of life, filled with God's word. However, Adam, according to Hosea 6 verse seven, it says he broke his covenant with God by receiving into himself the seed from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Also known as the serpent's words, the words of Satan. We all know by now that God's word and his spirit are one and the same. There are some verses I've drilled in. (laughs) The Bible teaches us clearly in John 1, verse 1, John 4, verse 24, John 6, verse 63, and John 3, verse 6. We're going to have a quick, quickly go through each of those verses now. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 4, verse 24. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. John 6, verse 63 the spirit gives life the flesh counts for nothing the words i have spoken to you are spirit and they are life and finally john chapter 3 verse 6 flesh gives birth to flesh but the spirit gives birth to spirit amen i put john 3 verse 6 last in that list because it speaks to the point i'm trying to make clear about adam if god's word and god's spirit are the same then while adam was filled with god's word He could say he was bearing God's image and likeness. However, once he received the words of the serpent through Eve, and once he acted on those words, then he was no longer in God's image. In John 3 verse 6, we are told that just as flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit. Since we all know that babies physically, they take after their parents, their their parents' physical image and likeness. Apples turn into apples from apple seeds. Alligators hatch from... Alligator eggs, right? Okay, so in the same way, Adam's spirit was corrupted within him because it was formed after the spiritual seed he received, which was Satan's seed, the words of the serpent, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Since God had appointed Adam to be the caretaker, the head of his creation, when Adam came under the authority of the spirit that opposes God, all of creation did too. If the head falls, so does the body. Thus, as it says in Romans 5:12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Amen. Sin entered the world through one man, Adam, who was created to be in God's image and likeness. That is, like God, because he was filled with God's life, word, spirit, with all that wisdom he was to govern the physical creation exactly like God would. However, when Adam was corrupted by the spirit behind that symbolic serpent The order that God had established, the structure, the order Everything, the way God organized it It was all messed up Physical creation came under the authority of the wrong spiritual being That spiritual being who was trying to set himself up to be God And as a result, a spiritual war began Let's quickly remember that verse we're talking about at the moment is Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 18. And in it, we are told very clearly that our struggle, meaning the war that we're fighting in, is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. And as such, we do not fight it with physical weapons, armor, or any acts of physical violence. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 to 5 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Amen. And that is exactly what Noah had to do when God told him in Genesis 6, that he was going to judge all the people of Adam's corrupted generation and establish a new covenant with Noah and the people who were obedient to God's word spoken through him. What was that covenant that God made with Noah? Actually, it was very similar to the one made with Adam. And you can find it in Genesis nine. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Noah had now become the head and was the one to rule, ruled all of creation with God. All right, so from this very brief explanation of the time of Adam and the time of Noah from the Old Testament, we need to recognize something important. Salvation is something that is needed at a particular time, a time of judgment. What we are saved from is not simply sin, but rather the result of our sins. God's end goal in carrying out judgment at the time of Noah was simply to bring his people back to himself. However, as we see throughout the Old Testament and even in the book of Revelation, the problem is really a spiritual one. In order for God to truly solve the problem of sin and betrayal, he needs to defeat and destroy his spiritual adversary, Satan. However, if he just simply destroys Satan in a in a click of his fingers, then everything and everyone that is connected to Satan will be destroyed along with him. Remember our spirits are born from the spirit or the word or the seed that is in our hearts. So in order to preserve the creation that God loves so much, he made a plan to uproot these these false seeds, the words of the devil from his creation before finally judging that spirit. This is the bigger picture of salvation. All right, I know that this is very brief, right? I've I've summarized this into just a few minutes, <laughs> but this is really a, a complex process outlined throughout the entire Bible. If you want to know more about this, if you want to ask questions about this, hear about it, and if this all sounds really new or even a bit strange, please reach out to us. Like I already said, we'd love to be connected with you. We have all sorts of Bible studies, group studies, things that you can join from online, anywhere in the world. Doesn't matter where you are. We'd love to talk to you about how about your questions, no strings attached. As I said, you can head over to our blog asitisinheaven.com, all hyphenated between that, and, and you can contact us through there. Back to the idea of salvation though. There is one more point we need to recognize here. That is that salvation is not something that needs to be here at all times, or in fact, forever. Salvation is only necessary at a time when God is sitting in judgment. Once the war is over, when God has finally defeated his spiritual enemy, our headgear changes. We no longer need helmets when the war is over. At that point, we are given something new to wear. Let's go have a look at what it says in Revelation 2. And so just to put this passage in context, Jesus appears to John in Revelation 1 in much the same way that God appeared to the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. This means that although John and Ezekiel both had experiences and saw visions in which they perceived themselves as playing a central role, they thought, you know, they were the ones in the vision. They were actually just prophetic visions, not the actual events that fulfilled those visions. So when the visions of Ezekiel were fulfilled, it wasn't Ezekiel fulfilling them. It was actually in the person of Jesus that everything in Ezekiel's vision became physical reality. In other words, what Ezekiel saw and experienced, Jesus fulfilled as if he was in Ezekiel's position. Likewise, when we read the vision shown to John in the book of Revelation, we should assume that it was the John of Patmos who did all those things. Let's remember that this is a record of a vision that will one day reach fulfillment. And that when that fulfillment comes, we will, as believers, recognize it. We need to recognize it and believe When that testimony comes our way. So in Revelation 2, after appearing to John and introducing himself in Revelation 1, Jesus goes on to instruct John to write letters to seven angels or seven messengers who are described as belonging to seven churches. I highly recommend you go and read these couple chapters to understand what I'm saying here. But this, according to Revelation 1 verse 20, is a mystery. I'm sure we'll get back to an episode about some of the wonderful mysteries in the new covenant later. It feels like we're in a movie. But in the seven letters Jesus instructs John to write, he promises a series of blessings to those who fight against and overcome the corruption that has infiltrated his people. So here we go. In Revelation 2, verse 10 to 11, it says, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious, you will not be hurt at all by the second death. Amen. You see, once the enemy, the Spirit that is trying to set himself up as God, is finally overcome, there is no need for a spiritual war anymore. At that time, obviously, there will be no more need for armor. And the helmet of salvation will be replaced with a crown of life. But in order for that to happen the spirit in every creature that bears its likeness of the spirit of evil, Satan, must be judged and brought to an end. That is why until that time we need salvation. We need to be saved. This is related to the Lord's prayer as well in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus teaches us to pray. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. To be delivered from the evil one and kept from temptation. This is the same thing as being saved from the judgment reserved for the evil one. Just to make it clear once again, if the word and spirit are the same thing as far as God is concerned, then the word of the devil, by that I mean words, teachings that are not God's, just own thoughts about, about God's word. They're the same thing as the spirit of the devil. Now, if having the word of God in our hearts means that we are formed in the image and likeness of God, like Adam was, then what do you think being filled with the words of the devil would mean? And if our spirits are formed in the image and likeness of the serpent, like Jesus accused the Pharisees and scribes of being, then when God finally judges that spirit, we will fall under the same judgment. This is why until the time described in Revelation 20 when the dragon While the ancient serpent is seized and locked up and finally judged, we need to be sure to have our helmet of salvation firmly and securely in position. Then we too will be able to wear a crown of life in the end. So today we've spoken about a lot. I know we went quite heavy from just a piece of headgear, but it's really important to remember that we need to be heads, not tails. Remember heads was talking about the person of authority Right? Someone that, that does the thinking, that has reasoning, not tales, that was actually talked about being at the bottom or even those who speak lies. So we do that by being obedient to God's word and making sure that we can keep our covenant with Him. In order to do that, we need to know what that covenant is. With that in mind, I'd like to remind you, if you'd like to know more, perhaps questions, perhaps want to deepen your knowledge, Or you might just be curious about what Shinjinji teaches after listening to this podcast. Feel free to contact us and come and study with us at no cost and no expectation attached either. So of course, it's not enough to just be a head. We also need to make sure that we protect our heads, spiritually speaking. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse three to five, it says, we've already read this one before, you might remember. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Divine power. (laughs) Carrying on, it says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Amen. What a scripture. How do we take these thoughts captive? How do we make them obedient to Christ? By knowing the word of God, and what Jesus taught. We can keep their words. This is what it means to have God's word written on our hearts. Having God's word written on our heart is the only way in which we can truly keep the covenant that we have with Jesus according to John 15 and 14. Two verses I'd like to leave you with from those two chapters are John 14 verse 15, which says, If you love me, keep my commands. And John 15 verse 10, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. In order to keep His commandments, we need to know what they are. We can't simply rely on tradition or a vague idea of what we think Jesus was telling us we should do. This is a serious matter, as serious as wearing a proper helmet or wearing the helmet that we have properly before going into war. So again, if you'd like to know more, reach out to us. Come study with us. This is how we can wear the helmet of salvation. Thank you so much for joining us again on another episode. I can't wait for you to join me again on the next episode. And until then, let's stay in the Word and stay close to God by having His Spirit, His Word in our hearts. Amen.